Hello, I'm Kevin, and welcome to another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope everyone had a swell and safe St. Patrick's Day this past weekend. Today we are headed to France to talk about one of that country's most notorious serial killers, Henry Landru. Now a disclaimer, I am from Ohio in the Midwest, and everything in me wanted to pronounce his name as Landru during the interview. So I apologize to all the Francophiles listening, who are going to have to endure my butchering of the pronunciation of Landru's name for the next hour. My guest today is Richard Tomlinson. Richard first came across the Landru case in the early 1980s when he was researching a PhD in modern French history in Paris. He was trawling through old newspapers in France's National Library and got hooked on the saturation press coverage that Landru's sensational trial drew at Versailles in 1921. He was sure the prosecution's case was wrong, and over the next decades maintained his interest in Landru during a career as a writer and journalist in Asia and Europe. Richard joins me from London via Skype to discuss his book, Landru's Secret, The Deadly Seductions of France's Lonely Heart Serial Killer. Richard returned to the subject of Landru in 2016 after an exhibition in Paris revealed previously hidden documents by the Paris police archives, which suggested that his theory about the case was correct. Landru's Secret is the end of his long quest to discover what happened to the ten women who disappeared near Paris during the First World War and to explore the possibility that Landru actually killed many more victims. Now, on to my conversation with Richard Tomlinson. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school Hi, Richard. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join me today. My pleasure. All right, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your previous work. Well, I'm a, a British writer. Uh, I'm based here in London, and um, I've done various things. The, I've, I'm, I write books about different subjects. The previous one uh, was a book that probably didn't have very big sales in the United States, which was about a, a, a cricketer uh, called W.G. Grace. Um, he did actually visit uh, America in the 19th century and did a cricket tour. Um, but I, his, going back a long way, I uh, have been always interested in France and I, I, I did a, a, a PhD in French history, um, which is how I first got interested in this subject. Um, so it's the book itself, Landru's Secret, is is in a way the end of a very long journey for me because I'm 60 and uh, this now goes back for me right the way back to my days as a student in Paris back in the early 1980s. All right, and so that is when you first discovered uh, Henry Landru. It, it is. I came across. Uh, the subject, the, the the whole case, when I was going through old newspapers in the French National Library in Paris, and I was actually looking for something else, and I came across the case, uh, the trial of Landru in 1921, uh, and I got completely gripped by it because it was such an absorbing story, uh, and also, frankly, because I didn't actually believe at the time the prosecution case it just seemed absurd to me uh, in particular the idea that 
Landru had just murdered all these women only for their money. Uh, it just didn't seem to me to add up, literally, because when you looked at most of these women, they, they really hadn't had uh, very much money to steal. Uh, so that was where I first became intrigued by the case. Okay, and is this a very uh, well-known case in France? It's really famous in France. I mean, this, this is like H.H. Uh, H. Holmes in America or Jack the Ripper uh, in, in England or uh, various other murderers we've had, uh, uh, such as Christie. Um, so it, he's really, I think you could say in France, he's the most notorious serial killer in French history, uh, certainly of the 20th century. I mean, I'll tell you a story which is true, which just tells you how it's part of French popular culture. When I was over there doing research for, for the book, um, I was riding the metro in Paris and I gave up my seat for a, for a woman who was a, a bit older than me. And we got chatting and she asked me what I was doing and I said I was writing a book about Landru and she said, did he do it? <laughs> so she, she, she instantly, it's part of their popular culture, they know a lot about him um, and uh, it's still the case in Paris that they organize tourist trips where you can go around all the, the main sites that Landru used when he was out and about on his evil business during the First World War. So very similar to taking a Whitechapel tour in London. A, a, a bit like that, yes. I mean, he had uh, in his uh, days trawling for women in Paris, uh, he had a series of apartments dotted, dotted around Paris and he also had a garage where he kept his um, the bits and pieces that he collected from them, their their identity papers, their furniture, all sorts of things. Uh, so there are various locations around Paris that you can go and see. And I've seen these 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 um, tourist parties. Yeah, his his main apartment, which is near the Gare du Nord in Paris, uh, the thing that astonished me when I when I saw it was that. You can look at contemporary photographs of the street scene outside because the police came to search the apartment and there were crowds all outside the building. It's exactly the same, even the same shop just right next door to it. It's the same family, I'm sure, which runs this little clock watch repair business. Um, and it's you can see the same, exactly the same shop. So there's a lot that hasn't changed. Um, uh, and his two houses that he had in the countryside, those are still there as well. So in the book, you do um, talk a little bit about your own visit to these sites. So you did a lot of firsthand investigation. Um, how did you go about researching this book? And, and again, the book is Landers Secret, The Deadly Seduction of France's Lonely Hearts Serial Killer. What did you do to research this? Because there are a lot of characters and a lot of moving parts in this story. Well, the first thing I'd say is that, that the, the research was only really possible because you can now uh, online go through all the newspapers from the, from the period. And there was saturation newspaper coverage of the whole case right from the moment of his arrest until the trial. So it, it, there's, there's masses and masses of reporting online. But you could never have done that uh, in the past it, it, because, if the, because before the newspapers were digitized, you couldn't do word searches and get into the material. So that, that was one big bonus for me. Um, 
The thing I was surprised about is that uh, in, in terms of the case itself, there's an absolute mass of material in two archives in, 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 in Paris. Uh, one is the police archives and one just outside Paris actually near Versailles. The, the provincial archives for the, the province where he, he, he allegedly committed these murders. And nobody had ever really gone through them. They, they, they dipped into them. Um, but I think it's safe to say that I'm the first person who's gone right the way through all the material and discovered things that confirmed hunches I'd had for about 30 years. So that was another big plus for me. And then, as I said, you, you can visit... Uh, and get a really good feel for both the houses where he took these women. He, he, he rented a house about 20 miles northwest of Paris at the beginning of the First World War, where the police said that three of the women plus one, of, one young man, the son of one of the women, had disappeared. And then he moved in 1915 uh, to a further out of Paris, to a house out in the country near a village called Gombe. Both those houses are still there. And in fact, the, I mean, the first house uh, is still lived in. I mean, I, it, it looks the same. I'm not sure if the owner is aware of its history. He or she probably is. The house in Gombe, uh, which is actually just outside the village, um, is exactly as it was before it's not actually inhabited anymore but it's it's quite a sinister place it's a sort of small house out in the f fields no 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 houses near it a huge garden at the back um and i got talking to the local farmer uh, who whose parents and grandparents had farmed the same area and he he not only knew all about the case but he said there were direct descendants of some of the people who had known Landreau at the time still living in the village with, with stories about him. So the on-the-ground research was, was, was really very uh, vivid for me. So what can you tell us about Landrieu? Uh, who is he and um, what can you tell us about his, his various aliases? Well, he, he was born in 1869 in Paris and his father was a uh, sort of upper working class. I mean, he was a skilled industrial uh, furnace stoker and they had enough money to send him to a church school, which meant he had quite a good education. And he has this very, very strong Catholic background. He, he, he did become um, a subdeacon at the local church um, uh, in his youth. And that's where he met his wife, who lived, uh, was a laundress who lived nearby. Um, she is another story we can perhaps return to later. But he, he drifts, I think, is the best way to describe Landreau in the late 19th century. He takes a series of jobs. Um, none of them really work out. He becomes obsessed with invention and make, actually inventing things. And it is really true <laughs> that Landreau invented a motorcycle, for instance. He patented it. It looks, if you look at the images of it, it looks pretty much like a bike with a bottle of petrol on it. But um, it, it, was a, it was exhibited at a, uh, an exhibition. But this is where things start to go wrong uh, around the turn of the century, is he takes to swindling, uh, defrauding people, uh, trying to get them to invest in his projects. 
Um, and he's pretty much on the run from the police on and off from 1900 onwards. He's descending into petty crime. He's finally arrested as a bank robbery goes wrong or an attempt to defraud a bank goes wrong. And he fakes a suicide attempt in the prison cell in Paris while he's awaiting uh, trial for these series of petty swindles. And he's examined uh, by, it's not a real suicide attempt, it's pretty obvious that he's, he's, he's trying it on. And the psychiatrist who um, examines him can't make him out. He decides that the psychiatrist, that, that this, that Landru is, as he puts it, on the frontiers of madness, but he hasn't yet crossed the frontiers. So he's what you call a borderline case. Um, and that is one of the most intriguing things about him is the state of his mind uh, as he gets older. If I fast forward to... Is, is he so, um, is he one of these people who you would say is hyper-intelligent and just has an innate ability to deceive people, or is he not quite that adept at those things? He's a curious combination because he is, on the one hand, not a very competent criminal. He keeps getting caught and in absurd ways, like, I mean, the, 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 the last time he's arrested, He's, he's literally running away from the bank and he trips and falls in the street. So the bank <laughs> catches up with him. So that's one side of Landry, which is that he's just not very good at it. But on the other hand, he certainly has the ability to deceive people. I mean, some of his swindles uh, are quite elaborate and quite well prepared. I think one of the things one thing that's clear about Landru is that he knew how to write. Uh, he he kept letters from um, uh, the women who, or some of the letters from the women he approached, but also he kept files of the letters that he had written. He had templates of letters, and they're very flowery, elaborate, verbose letters, but he had quite a large vocabulary, and you can imagine he could write. He was. Uh, he, he'd had a good a good education, and you can see from the letters that survive that he knew how to uh, make himself seem perhaps what he wasn't, which is a successful businessman. I mean, he dressed very soberly in a black tie, spotted tie, sometimes um, sober business clothes. Um, so he looked the part. In other words, he he's very difficult to make out. Um, he's a bit of an oddball. Um, and he is not at this stage um, doing anything other than petty crime. Uh, and he eventually ends up uh, getting jailed for three years, actually in a northern city called uh, Lille, and not in Paris, for trying to swindle a woman, uh, a widow, out of her assets. I mean, this was a very, very common thing in, in France at the time, perhaps in America too, where you got these these fraudsters who preyed on lonely women who wanted a husband um, in order to get their hands, his hands on 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 their their assets. Um, and Landry nearly got away with it. He signed an absurd pre-wedding contract uh, with this woman, but he then again got caught out and he was jailed for three years. So that's Landry on the eve of the First World War. Uh, I should just, though, mention one other thing, which is he is married with four children um, who are by then in their teens. And so 
that is another side of Landry, which is quite a puzzle, is what did the family know about his activities and were they indeed involved in, in, in any of them? And was this in fact a family swindling business? So we reach the First World War and to simplify it a little bit, he elopes from Paris just before the First World War with the first of the women the police eventually decided he had killed, who's um, a dressmaker, a single mother, teenage son, living near Paris. And she's the case that I got most interested in at, at the beginning because I couldn't see that the case fitted. I couldn't see how Landry could have chased her for her money. And he's operating under an alias. He's, he's pretending that he's a businessman from Northern France. Uh, and the mystery for me with this first case was why had the woman stayed with him when she discovered his true identity? Because she does. Because um, they move in together for a while. Do and they live together on and off uh, for quite a long time, for several months before the First World War. And then he disappears and uh, she goes back to the house where they've been living uh, north of Paris, about 30 miles north of Paris in a village. And she discovers some papers in a, in a box that uh, she's looking for him. He's not there, but this box is with his identity papers. And she finds out who he is and his her brother-in-law and her sister, who's quite uh, disapproving of her life, any lifestyle anyway, they say, you've got to break with him. And she promises that she will. And then she goes back to him. He reappears. Um, and that is the beginning of the, the whole of the central mystery of the story, which is these 10 women who disappear without trace, it seems, during the First World War. And she's the first one to disappear with her son at this first house he rents uh, near Paris, about 20 miles northwest of Paris, 20, 30 kilometers, um, and is never seen again. Um, and so that is the beginning of the whole mystery. The aliases that Landry uses, and he uses a lot, and that's not unusual. I mean, that's what swindlers everywhere do. They change their identity the whole time. But his uh, aliases are all quite clever once the war starts because he's always a businessman uh, of some description from occupied France, the bit of France that had been occupied in the north and northeast by the German army. So it is impossible to verify his identity. He always has some story about how he's left his identity papers. Um, it, you know, when the Germans came, he, he left his identity papers beh behind and he somehow got himself to Paris. So it, he never has to produce something which actually demonstrates who he is. Um, so that's the sort of mystery on the side of Landru, which is that or what people can't figure out about him. The bigger mystery to me, though, is why did all these women fall for him? Because the, the prosecution, the police and the prosecution eventually, they said that all these women were the same. And 
when I looked, and this is the wonderful thing about the archives, is there's all this material in the archives in Paris. And when I looked at these women, the thing that struck me most of all was how different they were from each other. Three of them did have savings uh, and assets generally that you could imagine were enough for a swindler to want to go after them and perhaps kill them uh, to prevent them going to the police. But most of them were very poor. They were of different ages. They ranged from 55 was the oldest woman to, to disappear and the youngest was 19. Um, and when one looked at their circumstances and their characters, they seemed very different. And I, in the end, I just didn't buy the idea that these women had succumbed to Landru and were foolish, besotted little women. Um, you know, there's a very strong streak of chauvinism in the whole way in which the case is presented. And I felt that one had to try to understand Landru from their point of view. Um, so that was, for me, the beginning of getting into this story was trying to figure out, well, this case just doesn't look right. What is right about it? And I guess the thing I felt, first of all, was that, of course, if you're looking at Landry, you're thinking, well, he didn't look very prepossessing. He didn't look very attractive. He was quite short. He was stocky, bald, with a beard. And he's uh, in his 50s at this point, correct? Mid-40s. Okay. So he sort of... Um, he doesn't really quite look like the kind of, he doesn't, you know, H.H. H. Holmes, everybody said about him, you know, he, he could be charming and he, you know, he had a kind of droopy moustache and gentle manners and, and, and kind of was just quite suave. You don't get that impression with Landry. You, I mean, if he had something about him, it's not very clear what it was. And part of the problem, of course, is that there aren't, any, there's only one photograph of Landru from the from the First World War, and it's quite an interesting photograph, which is in my book, which is a, a night at uh, the theatre with his uh, mistress at the time, who survived, um, and he's wearing a tuxedo and black black bow tie and sort of looking the part. He's out on the town, and you can just about see that he had something about him. His mistress was very attractive. I mean, she she wanted to be a, a, a theatre star and she was much younger than him. She was in her 20s. Um, but that was that was part of the puzzle. And then, then I had to sort of stand back from it and think, well, first of all, he's got a pretty clear field, people like him, because he's just above the, the age of military service. He was 45 at the, I think that's right. It's 45 at the start of the First World War. France is just being or Paris and France are just being denuded of young men. I mean, they're all going to the front to fight. There's and there's basically in a marriage market, it's it's a seller's market. So that's one thing to his advantage. And the other, I think, is that most of these women, you know, because they were poor, they were desperate themselves for somebody who could look after them financially. So I felt in the end that it wasn't really, it, it wasn't about romance at all. I couldn't, I could only really see one of the women who seemed besotted by him. Um, so it was more complicated, much more complicated than I felt the, um, the, the, the prosecution had made it and the police had made it sound like. So much more pragmatic on the part of the, the victims. 
Yes. Uh, well, it, I mean, it's easy after the event to say they made a terrible mistake. But yes, I think I think it was pragmatic. I mean, right down to one of them who she she agreed in the end to go and live in Gombe at Landry's house where she disappeared next day um, because she was terrified of the German bombardment of Paris. I mean, this was in the spring of 1918. And it's often forgotten because of the Second World War, that of course the First World War as well had aerial warfare, and this was just terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, and so there were some quite uh, difficult decisions I think these women had to make, and they obviously made a huge, huge uh, error, but uh, I think one has to be careful about just saying they were besotted. They, they, they were not. So in the midst of the chaos of the First World War, what was his M.O. for contacting and attracting these women? What he did characteristically, and he did it, the reason one knows this is because he actually kept the cuttings, was he placed Lonely Hearts adverts in the newspapers. Now, this was a time when there were lots and lots of newspapers around the world boasting that they had the biggest circulation in the world, but there were certainly several French newspapers, which had circulations of around about a million or even more. Um, so you could get a huge circulation uh, for your Lonely Hearts advert. And the amazing thing is, because he kept these these adverts, you can actually look at them online, the, the originals, um, in facsimile, obviously, but they're, they're there. And that's quite interesting, because when... You go to one of these uh, Lonely Hearts adverts, you can see that he was very clever uh, because he didn't pitch himself too high. He always made it sound like, yes, he was single, widower, um, but the key thing was financial, that he never made himself sound too rich because you got obvious swindlers, not very good at it, who would place adverts in one of the, the adverts I saw in a, in a news, in an edition that Landru advertised in, the guy is saying that he owns a chateau. Now, what on earth is he doing placing a Lonely Hearts advert in a passport? <laughs> he obviously doesn't own a chateau. He's trying He's trying to lure women, as Landru was, um, uh, so that he can get his hands on their money. Um, so that was the first thing he did. And then it gets even more sort of widespread because he then... Uh, he registers under false names, obviously, with matrimonial marriage agencies. So he's that's another kind of pool that he can tap into. But the thing for me that I found most sinister is the fact that it is quite obvious, and you can prove this, that he is absolutely rampant uh, in terms of just hanging around uh, outside factory gates uh, wandering down into the metro to accost women, trawling for women in public parks. And there's an awful lot of this, which uh, I don't think was ever recorded. I mean, for instance, his mistress, this is recorded, I and mean, he picks her up on the, on a tram, riding a tram. Um, and so he's kind of out there the whole time. I mean, he is sexually rampant. Um, and he, from that point of view, the, the number of women that the police decided from written records that he had contacted romantically during the First World War was too low. I am sure of it. In fact, you can prove it. The police said 
it was 283 women of whom 10 disappeared, the 10 women who were on the murder charge sheet. I can tell you for sure it's much more than that because you can figure it out from um, the testimony of some of the witnesses who were never called to the trial that I can't compute how many, uh, but it's certainly, I would say, dozens more than that. And he's, he's essentially propositioning all these women for sex. Yeah. He, well, he's, he's quite... Well, he is and he isn't. I mean, there, there's one case I came across where... This, it, it's a, it, it seems to be a power thing where um, there's a woman who, who he corresponds with and she's answered a Lonely Hearts advert and she lives in a town quite near Paris. And he says he's got a kind of strange come on in the letters because he says, ah, you know, I'm really ugly. My teeth are falling out. I'm bald. You're going to hate me. And she's, and she's, I'm afraid to say she wants an adventure. And, and she feels he's, he's kidding her. He's having her on. But then she then, after his arrest, she gives a, a deposition to the police, um, a statement where she says, well, it, it was most peculiar because this is what happened because they found this correspondence, the police, so they found her. And she says that she takes the train to Paris and she meets Landru at a cafe near the station. And he gives her a package and he says, I've just got to go off for a meeting. Um, I'll be back. Can you look after this package? And the package looks like it's something that's sort of quite valuable. And he goes away and comes back in an hour and then he says something like right i that, thank you for looking after my package i don't want to see you again so he's it's sort of like he's testing some of these women but he is also definitely um doing it for sex um so it, it it's this thing again with landry that it's very difficult to tell sometimes what is his exact precise motive sex usually but not always I would like to take a short break from our conversation with Richard Tomlinson to tell you about a couple of true crime podcasts that I listen to. If you live near the heartland and you like learning about unsolved mysteries and cold cases, check out Great Lakes True Crime. Every month, the podcast covers a new true crime story from the Great Lakes region of the United States and Southern Canada, such as mysterious murders and missing persons cases, many of which are still ongoing and the police are open to any tips that can help give them a lead. Being from the Great Lakes region, this podcast usually hits disturbingly close to home. I would also like to recommend Our True Crime Podcast. Every week on Our True Crime, hosts Cam and Jen break down a different murder, serial killer, or mysterious disappearance from across the globe. Sometimes old enough to be considered historic and sometimes fairly recent, the cases Cam and Jen research are usually not for the faint of heart. Be sure to check out Great Lakes True Crime and our True Crime podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Landru's Secret with Richard Tomlinson. What is his exact precise motive? Sex usually, but not always. As I read your book, I kind of thought that he had somewhat of a mechanical or industrial approach to his Lonely Heart uh, ads in the newspaper. Um, how did how did he do that? How did he very um, systematically approach this? It's interesting you say systematic because I think it was at the beginning. I mean, he buys a notebook 
um, or rather he acquires one. It's just a little pot pocketbook. And he starts keeping records of the women he meets. So, And indeed, on one day uh, in 1915, he, he records meeting eight uh, and makes little notes. And some of them are, are really horrible, uh, where he, he's, he's, clear, he's, he's deeply, deeply misogynist. Um, and he says, you know, one of them has sort of a terrible uh, nasal problem, don't want to see her again. Um, but so he makes jottings in his notebook about the women. Um, it looks methodical, it looks systematic, but in the end, I think that he couldn't keep up um, because you can prove that there are gaps in the record and the police again gave the impression that this notebook was a com comprehensive record of his activities. You can piece together from witness statements uh, after his arrest, uh, from witnesses who were never called at his trial, that the notebook is not a comprehensive record of all the women he met. And even more shocking to me is the fact that the police gave the impression that they had traced all the women that um, he had ever contacted, in writing at least. And there in the police archives, I came across a, doc a document which confirmed that the police actually admitted in a memo uh, that yes, he had contacted 283 women, uh, of whom 72 they could not trace. Um, they just had never been able to trace them. Now that doesn't mean he killed those 72, all of them, but it does mean that they were leads that had not been uh, pursued to the end. Um, so going back to Landru, I felt and I think you can see it in his behavior that it gets more and more frenzied and more and more out of control. Um, he's not making money out of it. I mean, by the end of the war, he's he's completely broke and he, he's, he's borrowing money off anybody. The village cob cobbler, his wife, who's another story altogether. Um, and is he uh, draining these women's uh, assets and, and fortunes on lavish living? Not really. I mean, he, he's got tremendous outgoings because he's got all these apartments. Uh, he's got two houses. He's 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 got a, he's got his family. He's keeping in an apartment in, in um, the suburbs of Paris. He's got the, the house he's renting down in, in, in Gambe. So he's got tremendous overheads. He is draining fairly systematically the savings over time of two of the women. That's definitely true. Um, but actually, even then, he's not very competent because, to be brutal about it, he kills them before he's drained their banks, bank accounts. And with one of them, for sure, and I think fairly probably with others as well, he enlists his wife to fake these women's signatures after they've disappeared at the bank so that he, she's pretending she's one of these women so that he can get access to the women's funds in other words you all you needed really was to say well this is this is madame so-and-so um and uh she here's her signature now can i and she's given me permission to um and and to be clear all the uh identity verification things we're used to in the 21st century that just doesn't exist yet didn't exist. Well, it, it, I mean, if you had a letter of author, authorization or the woman there and the bank clerk thought, 
that's who he says she is and she doesn't really say anything which is what his wife did i mean she would just step to the counter and sign the sign the um the form and she would have practiced the signature beforehand she would have seen the original signature of the woman who had disappeared in a world where men took care of their women folks um finances that was good enough um and landru did that time and time again um so you know he was able to do that but the mystery still is why he he spent it, it, from his point of view why he spent so much time not actually pursuing women who ha- uh, who who had assets that were worth stealing but women who were really poor and who were actually going to cost him money in the end to support them some of these women he was able to charm others he probably just deceived um, but what effect did he have on the people around the women, on their family, uh, on uh, the neighbors and the places he was living? I think, I mean, the, the families, this is where the women are all very different. I mean, some of them are, st- are, are, are close to their families. Some of them are estranged from their families. So there are different stories we, we, with each of them. One of them is estranged from her husband, who she's trying to divorce. Um, but the... The two most interesting cases to me in terms of the families was was one uh, was a woman called Anna Colombe and her sister um, gets very, very suspicious of Lon. And after Anna disappears, um, she starts uh, doing a little bit of detective work um, and she gets so far, but no further, I think because she just in the end decided that she couldn't get any help from the mayor of the village uh, she was pursuing, uh, where, where Landru had taken her sister, um, and she gives up. The more interesting one is, and, and the, the best detective in the whole case, and she's my heroine, uh, is a maid called Marie Lacoste, and she's a humble housemaid, and she's literate, but only just. Uh, she's got no real education, and her elder sister disappears. And Marie sets off to pursue Landry because she has visited the house in Gombe and she is very persistent. And over the course of she's time... She's definitely a hero in the book. Yeah, she is great and she's fearless. And she tries her best to get the police interested in the case. And of course, because she's just a humble housemaid and she's assembled this dossier of evidence and she's been very precise about what she saw down at this very sinister house she goes snooping around and she nearly nearly i think discovers the truth about what landry has been been about been doing at this house because she, this is when her sister is still alive by the way they're both down there uh, because she tries to open a, a, a locked shed in the back garden and she sees these sinister shapes and bundles in the in the shed and unfortunately it's locked but she she's very very precise after her sister disappears in terms of the evidence she collects the police in paris say we're not interested you've got to go to gombe the mayor in gombe when she writes this painstaking letter to the mayor he basically lies he says he knows nothing about this man and what he's done is she knows landru under one alias and the mayor knows Landru under a different a- alias. The mayor knows exactly who the maid is talking about. Um, but he has one little crisis of conscience when he replies. And he, he says, 
I can't investigate this man, you know, it, basically a man's life is his own business. But by the way, there was this other woman, this is the first woman I was talking about who started doing some, some detective work. She wrote me a similar letter, perhaps you'd like to get in touch with her, and she gave Marie the address, now that of, of the other woman, and they get together and they figure out what has been going on. And in the end, to cut a long story short, they shame the police, these two women, but particularly Marie, the maid, into investigating Landru properly. And that's the beginning of the end for Landru. This is in early 1919, just after the uh, First World War. And they do eventually, thanks to Marie, they track him down uh, to this apartment near the Gare du Nord where he's arrested in April 1919, 100 years ago. And th that section of the book on the investigation is an amazing tale of the, these women not only dealing with the challenge of, of investigating a possible serial killer, but also having to overcome all this cultural gender bias. Absolutely. And I, th this, this became for me a, a stronger and stronger theme. The more I got into the case was the degree to which this really was about chauvinism and about a man who despised women and who took advantage of the whole climate at the time where a man's word was always going to be believed over a woman's and men did not poke their noses into other men's affairs. So he was able to move quite freely in these sort of societies, uh, and this was particularly true, you were asking about the neighbours. Uh, down in uh, in Gambe, the village, um, people saw these women coming and going. And, you know, they used to come into the into the village shop and buy meat, and, and he would be seen out and about with them. A whole string of different women coming back and forth at this mysterious house outside the village. They saw it. They thought he was very sinister, but they didn't do anything about it because it was a privacy thing. Even though there were some very suspicious things that happened um, that, that you would have thought they would report to the police. I mean, there are two old ladies who are going past the house uh, and they notice smoke coming out of the house, horrible foul smoke. And that's one episode like that. Even more telling, I think, is there's a doctor who's biking home uh, to his barracks late at night and he passes the house. This is in the middle of the First World War. This great big roaring fire with foul, disgusting smoke coming out of the out of the um, out of the chimney. And he thinks that's very odd, um, but he doesn't do anything else. Carries on biking and then he gets a puncture in, uh, by a pond uh, just east of the village, uh, on the other side of the village, in the middle of a forest. And he's mending the, this is at midnight, he's mending his puncture. The car pulls up, which he's seen earlier outside the house, a tradesman's van, and a man gets out. And the description, from the description, it's obviously Landru, and he's lugging some heavy package over his shoulder. And he, he, he doesn't see the, the, the doctor who's mending the bike, and he, um, Landru carries this, this, with some difficulty, this package to the far side of the pond, disappears behind a clump of reeds and drops it in the pond at the end of a causeway. And then he drives back off again. 
but none of this gets reported. The, the doctor doesn't go to the police. Um, it's wartime. And so he is able to get away with murder, literally, because he's not under surveillance. There's no police really anyway in the village. There's just a 73-year-old constable because all the officers have gone off fighting to the front, at the front. Um, so from that point of view, uh, I don't think the police tried hard after Landry was arrested to say that he'd been a supreme master of disguise and cunning and all the rest of it. I don't think so. I think I think he was just. Uh, I think partly what gave him this this sense of of power was the fact that he could operate so openly um, and get away with it. He knew that people would just look the other way and keep yeah. uh, keep their business to themselves. Exactly, which I so, think was also if you're making comparisons with other murderers. I mean, I think Holmes, H. H. Holmes, is a very interesting comparison from that point of view because that was also true of him. That you know, he, he, people didn't for a long time uh, want to investigate because because of privacy, because he, you know, he looked the part uh, of, a, of a respectable person. So uh, he does get arrested, as you mentioned, and um, does go to trial. Exactly how sensational was this trial? The first thing to say is that it takes two and a half years uh, but after Landry's arrest, go to trial, uh, and the reason for that is firstly because this is just an enormous, enormous investigation. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of women they've got to pursue the, the police and track down leads. It's also because Landry stonewalls; he denies everything, um, and uh, from that point of view, it's he's he's an almost impossible nut to crack for the police because what they lack is direct forensic evidence of murder. The closest they get is the discovery of these tiny charred bone fragments under a pile of leaves with some charred women's apparel, suspender belts, things like that, buttons, hair clips, just a tiny amount. It's very damning. It's very incriminating. But of course, back then they didn't have the dna technology to to match any of this to the women and there are all sorts of problems with the chain of evidence they had the police had not secured the house uh and laundry has a very very clever and great lawyer defending him he's called vincent de moreau and thank goodness i was allowed by his his grandson to call him moreau which is how he was known but he's a brilliant brilliant lawyer uh, and he's he's defending Landru uh, because he's a passionate opponent of the death penalty. He despises Landru, but he also thinks that Landru there is not enough evidence uh, to to send Landru to the guillotine. So one gets to the trial, and you have to picture it as something that is both. It is the most sensational case, and it's been all over the newspapers for two and a half years. It's also the case that the judge completely loses control of the of the courtroom. So there's no real restraint by the end. There's no real order in terms of keeping people out of the courtroom. So as the sort of tension builds through the trial, um, more and more people are getting into the courtroom. Um, and by the end, it's just pandemonium. You can see it in these, unfortunately, I couldn't put 
put it in the newspaper in, in the book because it's just too difficult the, the, the picture is too grainy but some of the the contemporary newspaper pictures of the trial at the end it's just the, the courtroom has been completely overrun and it was of course also you know in among them were, were you know anybody who was anybody was there so that Maurice Chevalier he was there um, he was fascinated by the case and he went several times um, Colette the novelist she actually covered the first day of the trial uh, for one of the Paris newspapers um, and various other people were there including um, Rudyard Kipling the writer was there uh, for one day because he was in Paris to collect an honorary degree and I think his hosts just thought well we better just take him to the best show going which was to get on the train down to Versailles which was where the trial took place uh, and let him see what the, the, the greatest show in town because the, the, uh, the star of the show is Lanrue, who puts on this absolutely astonishing performance in the courtroom. And you can actually see it because when another thing that the judge did, which is astonishing, is he let the photographers into the courtroom. So there's a lot of, if you like, action footage of Landru, uh defending himself. Uh, and accusing everybody of uh, not producing any evidence against him. Uh, time and again, he says, your proofs, your proofs, where are your proofs? Knowing that actually, in the end, they have very, very little that they can pin on him. Um, so it is the most extraordinary trial. Without giving um, you know too much away, you, you do talk about the trial and... Um... Uh, you know, you raised some serious questions about how the trial was performed and, and the prosecution's case. But in in summary, um, how do you think Henry Landrieu uh, compares to more modern serial killers that um, listeners might be more familiar with? Well, I, I, I think there are two comparisons, uh, that, and one of them I've, I, I've made. I mean, I think the first being H.H. H. Holmes for this reason that they never, in the end, with Holmes, managed to establish remotely how many uh, people he'd killed, how many women he'd killed, and others, um, because uh, the trail was so obscure. He had moved around, and um, I think there is a direct comparison here with Landru, because the whole case was based on a deduction and the deduction was that a list of names that Landru had written in his notebook was the complete list of his murders. And I think you can certainly build a pretty persuasive case that that may well have been wrong. I think particularly the evidence of the doctor uh, who biked past Landru's house. Uh, why is the doctor so important? Because in the end, his testimony was completely discounted because the time he saw Landru, which was in the middle of 1916, didn't fit the dates of the disappearances of the women on the list. So that, in other words, the doctor was looking at something that shouldn't have been there or shouldn't have been happening if the list was a complete list of the murders because it, the, the, he, what he witnessed occurred six months after one of the, the known disappearances and six months before the other. That's quite a simplistic explanation, but that's the first problem. Um, that so rather than conclude, 
there must be more than what's on the list, they conclude the doctor must be wrong. Yeah, and they, I think what it was, was, was if you like, a case of what I think scientists call theory-laden observation, that here was the list. Why had he written it? Well, they must have been the list of the murders. It's possible that they were the complete list of the murders, but I, I, it's, it's certainly, from looking at the, 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 the material in the archives, I am as convinced as I can be that he killed more and possibly many more women. So I would say there's that comparison with um, with Holmes. There's an odd kind of comparison. Well, it's a contrast, really, with Ted Bundy, because it comes back to something I was talking about earlier, um, which is that when you look at Bundy, you look at the photographs of him, it's terrible, but you can see how Bun Bundy could have lured women uh, could have seduced them because he was a good-looking guy. Um, yeah, he's renowned for that. Exactly. And the thing that people couldn't figure out, and it's very, very difficult even now to figure out about Landru, is for all the fact that there weren't any young men around, when you looked at the guy who was appeared on the witness stand at the trial, this guy was, you know, he had a grey, straggly beard. He was completely bald. He looked, and in my view, was completely mad. He was deeply unattractive. Um, how on earth, you know, maybe maybe half a dozen women, but, you know, dozens and dozens of women. He does. He, he just looks creepy. He looks creepy. And I think the clue is the photograph... Uh, that I mentioned taken during the war when he's out on the town with his mistress and he's, he's, he's wearing evening clothes and, and uh, you know, he's looking smart. And the thing that's most striking about the difference between then and three years later at the trial, four years later at the trial, is that he is, um, he's sort of muscular, stocky, bullish. I mean, these things are quite difficult to write, uh, particularly if you're a man. But I think he might have had, before he was arrested and went, basically, he starved himself in prison and refused to eat. And then he started eating again. He didn't take any exercise. He aged dreadfully in prison. Um, I think you can see something in that earlier picture. And, in, and also, I think, in a police mugshot that was taken much earlier, uh, that he might possibly have had something about him that was attractive to some women, enough anyway, that he could um, get them interested in him because they thought he had money. So I think, I think it, but, but, but it's much, much less obvious than, than with Bundy. Um, so it is, it is another mystery about him. All right, well, Richard, uh... The, the book was great to read. I'm, I'm very grateful that you wrote it because um, Landru was somebody here in the United States that I'm, I wasn't familiar with at all. I don't think he's um, quite as well known over here. So uh, I'm very glad that I got the chance to read it. And thank you for coming on to talk about the book today. Um, if listeners want to find out uh, how this all ends for Landru and, and what happened in his case. They want to pick up your book uh, or learn more about you. Where where can they go? Well, it, he it's on Amazon and it's called as you've given the title, but it's the paperback is actually coming out uh, next month, uh, April, uh, to coincide with the centenary of his arrest. Uh, so uh, that's the place to go um, to 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 find it. Um, 
find out about me if you Google my name, the first thing you have to realize is that I'm not a runaway Secret Service agent. Uh, there's another British, <laughs> Richard Tomlin. <laughs> I'm the guy who so far, I, I wrote a book, as I said, about a cricketer called W.G. Grace, called Amazing Grace. Um, but the laundry book, the paperback, is out next month. Uh, and the hardback and the Kindle are up there as well. Okay. Well, um, once again, this was a, a great talk. Uh, and thank you so much for taking the time for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast, and a special thank you to my guest, Richard Tomlinson, for coming on the program. If you are interested in checking out Richard's book, Laundrieu's Secret, The Deadly Seductions of France's Lonely Hearts Serial Killer, you will find a link to it in the episode description on your podcast app and in the show notes at www.can'tmakethisuppodcast.com. Just an FYI, in the interest of full disclosure, the Can't Make This Up History podcast is an Amazon affiliate, so the show receives a small commission from any purchases made through its Amazon links at no extra cost to the person making the purchase. If you're new to the Can't Make This Up History podcast and you like what you hear today, give the show a review on iTunes, and be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when new episodes become available. If you want to listen to other CMTU episodes, they're available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. And as always, if you would like to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you on social media. I'm at facebook.com slash cmtuhistory, on Twitter at cmtuhistory, and on Instagram at cmtuhistory. And if you are interested in becoming a patron of the podcast and gaining new extras like being able to ask questions of future show guests, check out the show's Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash cmtuhistory. Lastly, I am long, long overdue for some thank yous. The show has gained a lot of popularity on social media over the last several months, and I want to thank each of the over 200 people who have decided to stay in touch with the show on Twitter. Specifically, I would like to say hey to a number of people who have been retweeting and talking about the show a lot. Haunted Happenstance, The Geekly, Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, Cutting Class Podcast, Cascadia Podcast, Amber, Anytown USA, Heidi and past guests Dean Job and Rich Rattay. I am so grateful for all your continued support. That's it from me for today. I will see you all back here in two weeks on Tuesday, April 2nd for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Make it a great couple of weeks until then.